Hello and thank you for downloading This is US Sustainability, the podcast from the US Sustainability Alliance, the voice of US sustainable food and agricultural production. My name's Russell Goldsmith, and on the previous episode, we began our report about USSA's press visit to Louisiana with my exclusive interview with Dr. Mike Strain, Louisiana's Commissioner of Agriculture and Forestry. And one of the things he talked about was the close collaboration between land-grant universities and agricultural producers. Well, in this episode, we show this partnership in action and how it's driving innovation. You'll hear highlights from our visit to the Rice Research Station, which is part of the Louisiana State University Ag Centre. We met Dr. Kurt Guidry, the uh, station's resident coordinator, and Dr. Ron Levy, the LSU Centre rice specialist and rice agronomist, who told us about the work they do there. We then headed down the road to GFMP Zombrecker Farms to meet brothers Paul and Fred Zombrecker, who showed us their rice and crawfish operation. So let's start with Dr. Guidry's talk at the Rice Research Station. Well, first, welcome to the uh, Rice Research Station. This is one of um, about 15 research stations that we have in the LSU Ag Center. Uh, we predominantly do uh, research related to rice here. So our primary focus is in, on variety development and rice production management research here at the station. Uh, but we also do some foundation seed production. And because crawfish has become a pretty significant rotational crop with rice. We also do some crawfish production demonstration work at our south farm. One of the unique things about this research station uh, versus some of the others in the system is that we have extremely close working relationship with producers in the rice industry here. Uh, A lot of our research is funded through checkoff dollars through the rice promotion board, research board. And so we will have producers that come by uh, ask questions, try to get answers to questions, and uh, we work really, really closely with um, with our producers in our rice industry, and, and most of those producers are multi-generational farming operations that have been in business for many years and have used and utilized our research here to be able to sustain those operations over that long period of time. Uh, again, we, we primarily focus on two things here, rice and then a little bit of crawfish. Rice is a significant crop for us here in Louisiana. It's a significant crop uh, for this part of the state. It's about a $350 to $400 million farm gate value crop for us. And then when you look at crawfish, crawfish is about a farm gate value of around $200 million a year, and that's been growing uh, pretty exponentially year after year over the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, We have about 700 acres here, uh, what we call our main farm. Uh, we have another 300, a little over 300 acres, what we call our South Farm, which is located about five or six miles south of here. We do most of our research here. Uh, the South Farm is for our weed science project and for our crawfish demonstration work. Weed science project wants weeds. We don't want them here. So we keep those two separate uh, just to, to make sure that we can maintain the, the quality of our research. Uh, we have major focus areas here. So we have um, breeding. Uh, our a new focus area is, is quantitative genetics. We just hired a quantitative geneticist that started in August. And so he's going to be working collaboratively with the breeding program. Uh, our agronomy project, entomology, pathology, weed science. Uh, we also have a foundation seed program here. Uh, or most of the varieties that we produce here, we produce seed that then gets sold to seed companies. They expand 
and that's where the commercially available seed becomes. But it starts here, a lot of the varieties start here at the Rice Research Station. Dr. Guidry, can you tell us more about some of the breeding work that you do here at the Rice Research Station? Uh, we do predominantly long and medium grain rice uh, variety development. We've had some short grain rice development, but we don't grow hardly any short grain rice here in Louisiana. So the breeding program tends to focus on long grain and medium grain. Uh, but we also do conventional inbred and hybrid variety, variety development, uh, inbred. We have conventional and then herbicide resistant. The herbicide resistant is a little bit different than a lot of the other commodities because it's not GMO. The herbicide resistant is bred into uh, these varieties uh, through normal breeding practices. All of our rice varieties are non-GMO. And then they also look at adding other traits into those varieties. So they've come up with some molecular markers for certain disease traits, uh, disease resistance in some of these varieties as well. Uh, they've integrated molecular marker to do molecular marker assistance breeding. And so they've take molecular marker data to help increase the probability that they cross these two parents that they're going to have a variety that, that has the quality and the characteristics that they want. In addition to that, the new quantitative geneticist uh, is taking all of the data that we produce here throughout the years through our breeding program uh, and using sophisticated modeling techniques, artificial intelligence, high throughput, phenotyping techniques to add data, add layers of data to the data that we already have to determine or to develop prediction models to help increase the efficiency and the effectiveness of our breeding program as well as to decrease the length of time it takes to get that variety to commercially available to our producers. Uh, also, we have a couple of faculty members that are doing what we call more niche market variety development. Uh, they have a high protein, low glycemic index rice that uh, is actually commercially available now. And so they're, the first variety of that has come out. They're looking at trying to improve that variety in terms of agronomic characteristics and some other things, as well as they're also looking and working on looking for that next herbicide-resistant technology. Uh, if you look at over the years, what we've done in terms of variety releases, uh, we've got uh, 61 released to date, uh, with three more scheduled for release in 2024. And you can see there, uh, particularly over the last, uh, since 2000 till now, we're releasing between one and one and a half varieties per year. Uh, and each one of these varieties is gonna generate higher yields for our producers, higher yields at the same input level, so we're increasing the efficiency of our producers, uh, helping them become more economically sustainable uh, and, and to make uh, improved uses of resources. And then uh, they have dabbled into some, what I would call some specialty stuff, uh, aromatic rice, high amylose rice, which is um, preferred by some of the Central and Latin American countries. So some export market potential there. Uh, and then obviously the, the high protein, low glycemic index rice. So we're now going to hear from Dr. Ron Levy. Uh, Dr. Levy, can you talk to us about rice production in Louisiana and what you're doing to improve sustainability? Typically, we grew about 480,000 acres of rice in Louisiana. We were typically the second largest rice producer in the U.S. Arkansas was the, the number one as far as acres. And California was typically right behind us. 
because of some different things that took place, California only produced about 275,000 this past year. So we're kind of alone in, in second place. But as you can see, the acres in Louisiana have dropped as well. Due to high production cost, high nitrogen fertilizer cost, and the value of the crop in sales wasn't quite as good as, say, soybeans or corn or cotton. So we saw those prices go up significantly as compared to prices in rice. We also here at the station, a lot of work has been done. As you know, there's concerns about greenhouse gases. We know that when we flood the fields and leave them flooded, this is where the microbes will produce methane or that methane will be produced, especially in these flooded fields. If we use one of these other type of systems where we actually drain parts of the field or we just flush the field or we alternate wet and dry, then we can reduce those levels. But when we reduce those, there is some other gases that are released. And if you know of laughing gas, we reduce laughing gas. Basically, in the denitrification, Vacation process, you're actually, that nitrogen being less is nitrous oxide, so we have some gases as well being released. If we look at that though, this is the global warming potential of doing this alternate wetting and drying, and this is something that's being looked at a lot. You can see that we can reduce significantly the amount of greenhouse gases being released from flooded rice fields. Also, if we look at yields, we can see that we have very similar yields, and there was really no differences in the, the yields when we use the alternate wetting and drying method. We've used that to treat for rice water weevils before we had insecticides, where we drain the field to kill the larvae that were feeding on the roots. And this is a practice that we feel like we can have farmers go in that direction to where we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Can you just explain why you need to use what Seems like a lot of water to grow rice here. Rice uses a lot of water, but probably one of the main reasons is for weed control. Weed control, once we flood rice, then typically you get very little, if any, seed germination. So any of the other weeds that would be competing with rice, once it's flooded, then they, they won't be able to germinate and make it through the flood water before they die. But also rice is a very special plant and that it can move oxygen from the from the leaves down to the roots and it is a large user of rice when we take the rice off or leave it dry for a very short period of time then it wants to start to wilt because it, it does move a lot of water through the plant and staying cool rice is a c3 plant which doesn't mean a whole lot other than it was developed in cool climates so with our warm hot climates here then Typically, it doesn't perform as well if it doesn't have water on it. How does the uh, rice research station actually work with uh, rice producers? Basically, we have a real good system where the research is extended to the producers through our extension service and through personal contact. So we have a lot of on hands contact with a lot of our producers. They actually come to the station for information. We work with them. We have advisory meetings to find out what their needs are. We have a rice verification program where the specialists, different specialists, weed scientists, disease pathologists, go and meet with farmers. We go once a week to the fields 
to make all management recommendations for those fields. So it gives a good opportunity to visit with farmers, to have interaction with the, with the county agents. We have county agents in the different parishes. They come, the farmers come, any of their consultants come. We meet with them once a week to look at the fields, make recommendations on best management practices to produce rice in those fields. It's also a good agent training where we have new agents or young agents. They get opportunity to actually see these things and learn them in the fields. And you can see some of the things. They'll see diseases, insects, weeds. So it helps them understand production practices in the field in a regular basis. And they actually get to see the results. So that when we go to the field and make recommendations, when they go back the next week or the next week, they can see how those things actually affected those crops. We collect a lot of data in those fields. You can see as we go through the different growth stages, we measure those or, or time them. We look at drainage. We look at how much rainfall we collected, how much water we used, a lot of information. We actually get to see results. So we go in and harvest the fields. We keep that information. We do an economic evaluations on the fields. So we can look at that and compare that to our parish and state yields. This is our production in Louisiana. This year we thought we were going to have record yields, but we got a lot of rain late in the season, really uh, drastically affected our yields and our second crop yields. But again, you can see our yields are a lot higher than they were in the past. And basically that's due to the best management practices that have been uh, developed here at the station and through the researchers here at the station. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, following our visit to the Rice Research Station, we headed to Zornbrecher Farms in Crowley, Arcadia Parish to meet with brothers Paul and Fred Zornbrecher. We got to see, and in some cases ride in, the boat that they used to catch crawfish, or crayfish as uh, you might know them. Uh, Fred kicked things off with an introduction to their farm. We're a fifth generation family farm. Our uh, ancestors settled here in the 1880s and so far we're the fifth Actually, there's six generations now that operate the farm. We, uh, we farmed 2,100 acres of rice. We had 1,000 acres of soybeans and about 1,600 acres of crawfish. We own about a third of the land that we farm. We've been farming some of the same properties for three generations, so it's uh, uh, with no written agreements yet. So we pride ourselves on making the best crops we can. We've, we've been growing uh, seed rice for production in the area for the last 40 years. Uh, with the new technologies, we, we grow seed rice from BASF and the LSU Ag Center. Uh, uh, we always like to try new cultural practices. We stay up with the, the latest technology. All of our fields are precision leveled. We have uh, automated drying systems at the bins that we've adapted to, to make that operation more efficient and. Uh, you're going to see a, a demonstration with crawfish. It, there's really nothing to catch now because the season hasn't really started, but we're going to pretend that we, we're going to crawfish, and I'm sure you'll get a ride in the boat with Paul. But crawfish is, uh, has been a very important way for us to diversify in the economy. Soybeans in particular just uh, hit and miss. I mean, it all, it's all dependent on the weather and the markets. And the mar when the markets are really strong, the weather usually screws up, so and that's what happened this year. So, uh, with rice, it's a lot more dependable, a lot more uh, consistent, and with crawfish, 
it's it's added another area of, of uh, the operation that uh, extends our cash flow and allows us to uh, operate in a more efficient manner. It's fascinating to hear that you grow uh, rice and crawfish in rotation. Can you tell us more about how exactly that works? So uh, I, I guess uh, the, to take you from the start with the crawfish production when the rice is is uh, midway through the growing season when we can start holding water on the fields we introduce crawfish from neighboring fields into there and we'll do what they call stocking so we'll take like one sack of crawfish per acre and release those crawfish in that flooded field as the rice matures we take the water off of the field to harvest the rice when we do that the crawfish go and bury in the ground and all crawfish are always uh, bred and ready to reproduce so when they go down their metabolism slows down they live off their body fat and and hopefully the smart crawfish always go down deep enough to stay in moisture lsu has i think got some research done on finding crawfish 25 feet in the ground uh, but i think most of these probably go three or four feet and then uh well the fields will be unflooded for maybe two months as we harvest the rice after we harvest the rice uh, around the first week of october we reflood the fields and uh, the crawfish had buried come out of the ground and they'll have either eggs or baby crawfish underneath their tails and they'll release the babies into the water and within about six weeks we can have crawfish that are almost to marketable size with optimum uh, temperatures and stuff now uh, every time the, the water temperature goes from uh, 60 to 50 every time it drops 10 degrees a crawfish becomes half active so at 50 degrees water temperature, it's half. At 40, it's a quarter active. So they, they slow down on their feeding process. They slow down on the activity. They don't go into the traps as fast. So at the beginning of the season, we may run our traps every other day. We'll put about 10 to 15 of these traps per acre. And we put them in a line. And we might make a circle or a, several lines. And uh, the boat just drives next to the trap and the top of the trap is open with the plastic so it has a handle on it so all you basically doing is grabbing it emptying it into a tray rebaiting either with fish or artificial bait when when the temperature is cold we usually use that to use fish as the water temperatures warm up we can use a, a artificial bait made by Perina. so we'll bait the trap and the boat never stops you'll put the baited trap down in front of the next trap grab the trap and dump it one guy can run a thousand traps in five hours. Now uh, you catch anywhere from three or four crawfish to three or four pounds of crawfish, depending on the water temperature. Late in the season, April and May is our prime uh, months of the season, is when uh, the catch will peak and you can, you can catch several pounds of crawfish in each trap. So they'll just climb up and they fall in here and they can't get out. I, I guess a couple with a lucky shot could get out, but not, not many of them do. <laughs> If you don't run them for several days, you'll have more and more will get out, but running them every day. Uh, but uh, uh, every time the, the water temperature changes and, and the weather changes, uh, uh, the way the crawfish grows, it molts, it drops its shell off, and there's little calcium uh, balls in, in the nose. The calcium all goes to those balls, and when it drops the hard shell, it's got a soft shell, calcium relocates in the rest of the shell but when a crawfish grows when it molts it can grow up to a third of its size overnight so you'll go from one day them not staying in this trap to the next day staying in the trap and if it stays in the trap then that's money you know and then as we start catching more and more the bars become particular 
so we grade our crawfish so we have a big grader that we can get all the crawfish come in and we can actually size them so we can wash them run them over a, a, a grader get the small ones out either release the small ones or send those to the peeling plants where they peel them and then your higher priced ones will, will, will get out uh, or you can do what they call a road crawfish which is a, a, a medium to large crawfish that, that you can sell everywhere. Do you use any um, treatments for the crawfish? The only thing we do is, is try to fertilize the, the, the remaining stubble after we crawfish. We may put a little extra fertilizer to get that regrowth after we harvest the rice to get the, the regrowth. But uh, we tried feed uh, 25, 30, 35 years ago. Uh, LSU was doing a little work and uh, it seemed like we would get them to grow and then we would catch them and then we were back to square one and all we were doing was buying feed so it wasn't feasible, you know. You don't get diseases? Crawfish? There's something called a white spot that uh, has been a virus that has been showing its uh, face a little bit. I think LSU is doing some work now to try to figure it out, but it's real contagious from one field to the other. And there's been some isolated cases, so uh, that's a concern. You know, hopefully they can figure out what's causing it and what's uh, to, and, and maybe something to prevent it. Down south where we have a lot of deep wells we pump water out of the ground there's a lot of places that use surface water they pump it out of the ditches uh rivers and stuff they get in problems with what they call an apple snail it's a real big snail and it's it's actually there's so many in the field that they were plugging the holes to the traps and and all they'd have was snails in the traps and uh you can't eat them if you could eat them we'd, we'd figure that out we'd make the holes a little bigger you know we eat almost everything, but they said you don't want to eat those. <laughs> so luckily we don't have much problem because we don't have a lot of surface water uh, problems, but, uh, but that's a new problem that's been coming and they're trying to look at uh, something to control the apple snail. We've heard a lot about crawfish um, during our time here in Louisiana. Why is that? What is it about Louisiana that makes it suitable for crawfish uh, production? So uh, crawfish are... Uh, uh, in, in, in Louisiana, where we have flat ground, crawfish are, are really adaptable to, you know, they've been, a, uh, there's not a lot of places they can raise crawfish because you have to build a whole water and then you can't be on a contour because if you're on a contour, uh, we zero grade a lot of this stuff. So it's laser level. When we pump on the rice, we can put one inch of water on the rice. We don't need to pump a whole lot of water. And what Fred's, Fred's grabbing is, uh, it's a little water gauge, so when we flood, if you can get it out, whenever we flood the, uh, the rice, when we get all the ground covered with an inch of water, we'll knock that gauge in a certain level. So we only use the least amount of water we need for a rice crop. And then in the winter, we're fortunate enough where we get a lot of rainfall, so it helps with the crawfish. So hopefully, it, you know, we, we don't need to pump a whole lot on the crawfish. Where, where's the natural habitat? Crawfish? Cle yeah, clearly not in the fields. Yes, yeah, so the red swamp crawfish, the Chafalaya Basin, y'all probably came over the Basin Bridge. So you got a lot of different swampy areas. And the red swamp crawfish, I don't know if it originally came from there, but you know, it was a swampy, uh, conditions were good for it, always wet. And uh, that's what a crawfish wants. It wants a field that's, that's been wet. It doesn't want a field that's been dried out. Because when we have droughts during the summer, we never too sure how many of those mama crawfish are going to survive that drought. 
like I said, they always said the smart ones bury deep enough to where they'll stay in the moisture. So when did you start with crawfish here? I've been growing crawfish for 45 years now. I mean, I'm 55. I remember when I was 10 years old, we had some. It's become more of a business. It was a little, uh, we used to have little push boats at one time. Uh, and you kind of just did it for a little sideline. Now it's a big piece of the pie, you know. We do it to uh, diversify, you know, because sometimes these grain markets, uh, we have tough years that, that uh, one good thing about crawfish, everybody, there's a certain time of the year, people die for them, you know. They just, they, they can't, they gotta eat them, you know, and uh, we're in the right place for that, so. Uh, so we're now looking at the boat uh, Paul and Fred used to catch the crawfish. You drive with your feet. You steer with your feet. So you pull it. And it's all hands free. So you steer with your feet. You can stop with your hand when you need to, but you're driving a trapped up and you have sacks. You got five sacks that are hanging here. And you put bait in here, so your bait's here. So you always have a baited trap in the boat. You put a trap down, you grab the next one, and the boat never stops. Every seven seconds, you're picking up another trap. So when these five sacks get full, and the second table gets full, he usually stops, takes off the five or six sacks, puts them on the front of the boat or wherever, puts more sacks, and then takes off again. Like I said, one guy can, one guy can run a thousand traps in five hours. We get H2A guys to help us. Uh, been having the same group for about 20 years. They come and uh, it's, a, it's, it's labor intensive. Sometimes the weather real bad. That's why we have the tops. You keep them out of the rain. And uh, it's cold sometimes. So it's hard work. So we've just visited the, uh, the rice research station. I was just wondering, you know, how that affects the work that you do you know is there an input into into the work that you're doing here yeah it's a, a, a rice station we are fortunate to have right down the road uh, my father worked there for years and uh, after his his uh, seventh child figured out he had to go out on his own because he he couldn't afford it on a state salary anymore but he was an ag engineer there and he started farming in uh, in 1965 but every year the rice stations developing uh, new varieties that uh, work well in this area for us. Uh, over the years, we went from growing real tall rice, now we can grow short rice for the hurricane season. They make the rice plants short statured where they don't blow down as much. They make uh, the grain quality uh, better and better. They have uh, uh, machines now that they can uh, test uh, for uh, certain diseases. So they breed varieties that are highly adaptable here and, and and yes, they, they're keeping us in business because uh, we need better, uh, better rice that produces more grain every year to cover the, the extra expenses. So, uh, so they find out what rices do well, what rices have good return crop, second crop, and they also implement that with the, with the crawfish. We know what varieties are better with crawfish, uh, which varieties are uh, uh, Stay, stay in the field longer for the crawfish and they are working on, on new varieties that, that uh, will be better for that uh, and doing a lot of research on crawfish. Crawfish are just hard because it's hard to, it's hard to uh, uh, study something that's uh, uh, impacted by mother nature uh, so much but, but they have a lot of data that, that we can use to, to try to make things better in the field.
Well, that's it for this second of four episodes from our trip to Louisiana. Uh, in the next episode, we'll be looking at climate change in motion, featuring highlights from our visit to the LSU Center for River Studies. And we'll hear my interview with Greg Grandy, the Deputy Executive Director at the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority of Louisiana. In the meantime, if you want to learn more about the U.S. Sustainability Alliance, please visit the website, which is theussustainabilityalliance.us. Uh, you'll find plenty of additional information about all the topics we've discussed in this episode on that site. And don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast on your favourite podcast app. And of course, if you've enjoyed the show, please do give us a positive rating and review. But for now, from me, Russell Goldsmith, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.